We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. I also want to say thank you for all of your emails and for all of the messages you send with your feedback on the podcast. We really do read all of them. I read all of them and appreciate them so much. And I'm excited today that we're joined by my colleague, John Daniel Davidson. He's the politics editor at The Federalist, and he has written a column that I think is clarifying and helpful on the Ukraine crisis. So, John, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Emily. You wrote a piece that says the Ukraine crisis is a direct result of Biden's weak foreign policy. That's the headline. And it is really helpful in clarifying because a lot of the debate in the last couple of days has centered around that very question. To what extent is this directly uh, stemming from Biden's policy? So if you could lay out your argument for us uh, right off the bat here, that would be so helpful. Sure. Now, I think I should say, um, by, um, by way of qualifying headlines, don't always tell the whole story, right? So <laughs> yes. uh, Biden's foreign policy isn't, uh, you know, isn't the only reason for the Ukraine crisis, right? And, and uh, you know, I think we should get into the background here, the, the history of it, because the Ukraine crisis stretches back to the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, but uh, Biden's weak foreign policy and the specific actions that he's taken since coming into office have exacerbated the situation. And I think is why um, Putin has decided to act now as opposed to some other time or as opposed to waiting. Um, the, the, Ru Russian, uh, the Russians are patient and, and Putin could have could have waited. Uh, but I think he's acting now because he knows that uh, the West is in disarray. It, the U.S. leadership is is feckless and unfocused and incompetent. Uh, and after especially something like the debacle of the Afghanistan withdrawal, I think he understands that that whatever uh, economic sanctions he might face for for taking action in Ukraine um, are worth the cost and probably uh, not going to hurt as much uh, as we think they will. And. Uh, and the other thing is, I think he he think he sort of has Biden's number. You know, it's like Joe Biden is not like a you know, this, uh, people have been circulating this ridiculous Time cover, uh, Time magazine cover. You know, the one where Biden has the aviators on and and like Putin's like scared in the reflection of Joe, Joe Biden's aviators and like, you know, there's a new a new boss in town or whatever. It's ridiculous the idea that Biden is this like savvy foreign policy, you know. Um, strategic thinker who's you know going to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Putin and put him in his place. It was never true. Um, so I think the, uh, as I said, the weakness and um, strategic incompetence the Biden administration has um, encouraged Putin to act now uh, and to sort of seize what he can and advance very long-standing um, aims, strategic aims in Ukraine, uh, as Putin kind of laid out in his speech the other day you know, in effort to sort of right the wrongs that he sees from decades back at the, the breakup of the Soviet Union and the, the um, sort of adjudication of the Ukrainian of Ukraine's borders. So. So the, the counter argument that would be raised by, let's say, somebody like Ann Applebaum would be, why is the Which West... I would never read because she blocks me. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. You're, you're really you're missing out. I don't know why. 
Interesting. There's got to be a reason. You probably did something. I didn't think right. I'm important enough for her to to uh, to uh, be noticed by her, but I guess I should be honored. Uh, it's a privilege, an honor and a privilege. Um, but the Ann Applebaum's of the world would say mm-hmm. the West is in less disarray now because Biden believes in a strong NATO and believes in this united Western um, coalition. And they kept using the word he kept using the word united yesterday, and it, it's the word the you know the administration keeps trying to hone in on. Um, as opposed to under Trump, when there, they had sort of there was a thwarting of the that order and it wasn't united. And so there was a post on, I think, Rachel Maddow's MSNBC blog that Molly actually called to my attention saying Putin is is acting now because he was happy with what Trump was doing. And he thinks he can take advantage um, now that Trump is out of office. So what would your response be to that point when you're saying the the John Daniel Davidson perspective is the West is in disarray, the the order is in, in disarray now when somebody else would counter and say no, it's better now than it was under under Donald Trump? I think that's all narrative. I don't think that matches up with like actual like things that have happened in the real world. Um, You know, NATO wasn't in disarray under Trump any more than NATO has been in disarray since, uh, you know, the the, uh, Bosnian wars of the 1990s. Right. Right. Uh, NATO has like long term strategic and structural problems. Right. That have everything to do with these really tectonic historical shifts in in like world history, like the breakup of the Soviet Union, the post-Cold War era. What is the purpose of NATO? Nobody seems to know. Um, But I mean, and NATO doesn't even know. But the idea that that, um, a a change in U.S. administrations makes NATO more or less united, I think is a narrative of the corporate media uh, that wants to paint Trump as this disruptor who's going to like end NATO. Uh, You know, all Trump did was say, you know, NATO members should pay the amount that they agreed to pay. He didn't take any actions. He repeatedly, and he was sort of forced to repeatedly say like, NATO's strong, U.S. is committed to NATO, just like he was repeatedly forced to say like, White supremacy is bad. Nazis are bad. He had to say that more than any president has ever had to say it because he was constantly asked about it. Um, Trump's actual actions didn't do anything to undermine NATO readiness or NATO unity. Um, And and if anything, Trump's actions repeatedly showed... um, sort of uh, stiff opposition to Russian designs, showed a willingness to push back against um, Russian aims uh, uh, in certainly in Syria and in the Middle East. Uh, under Trump, let's remember, uh, you know, like a battalion of Russians were wiped out by U.S. special forces. Um, and, and that wasn't, you know, and that was like well known that that happened, that U.S. special forces encountered Russians in Syria and they all died. Um, so, you know, and then you have Nord Stream 2, which which uh, the Trump administration uh, took a much firmer line on than the Biden administration. The Biden administration in May waived sanctions on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, uh, basically allowing um, Germany and and uh, uh, the EU to to be reliant on, to a large extent, Russia for the natural gas. Um, so I think that I think it's all narrative. I think the reality is the Trump administration was a lot firmer with Russia than the Biden administration has so far proven to be. Uh, and and the idea that you know NATO is, and the, and the US and its European allies are unified now is mostly rhetoric. 
we've already seen sort of hedging from uh, from Italy that you know about these sanctions. Why? Because Italy is energy dependent on Russia. We've already seen some. You know, we, we did see Germany. You know, put a pause on Nord Stream two. They didn't say it was canceled. They just said, you know, we'll see. You know, how far if it's a real invasion or not. Um, we even even when you when you look at some of the details of the sanctions, uh, 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 Great Britain. You know, the the you would think that their their sanctions regime would be a lot more extensive than than it looks like it is, just simply because of the number of Russian billionaires that park their money in London, uh, and then with with the Biden administration as well, like they they are at pains to say, oh, this is just the first slice of of sanctions, and we're going to see. Are they going to like add sanctions like for every mile into Ukraine that Russian tanks roll? How is this like this tranche system going to work for sanctions? It all comes across as very weak. Nothing about it in reality comes across as like this extreme like unity and with one voice we're going to like, you know, say, you know, Russia has to turn back. I don't think that those Russian forces are ever going to leave those eastern areas of Ukraine any more than the Russian Black Fleece, uh, Black Sea Fleet is going to ever leave Sevastopol or, or Crimea. I, you know, I, I think it's a fait accompli in national security uh, and strategy circles. It's called the, the sal- salami tactics. You take one little slice at a time and pretty soon the whole salami is gone. And I think that's what we've been seeing Russia do for years now. What does it mean that the same people who were in charge, roughly uh, same sort of of the same mindset, and in some cases, literally the same exact people who were in charge in 2014 um, when the Crimea situation unfolded, are now running the Biden administration? Are there clear parallels in the way this has played out to the way it played out then? I think there are. Um, th- this was uh, something that kind of caught the Obama administration flat-footed, uh, and and much of the West, you know, flat-footed the idea that Russia would annex Crimea if Ukraine turned toward Europe and the EU never seemed to have occurred to the Obama administration or or our European allies. It should have, right? The and this gets into some of the history, the settlement of Ukraine's borders and the status of Russia's Black Sea fleet in Sevastopol was inherently unstable. It was an inherent from, from 1997 when the partition agreement was signed between Ukraine and Russian, Russia with a 20-year lease on, on, the, the, uh, on Sevastopol and, uh, and access to that port. <clears throat> It was an inherently unstable situation, and it was gonna. It was a ticking time bomb in a way. And you would think that the Obama administration would have been ready for the eventuality after the protests in Ukraine and like the the uh, deposing of the of a Ukrainian president that they would anticipate that Russia would would act like this. But there was no sign that they did. And the other thing it makes me think of specifically talking about like deterrence and sanctions is the way the Obama administration, I mentioned this in my piece, responded to the Syrian civil war with Bashar mm-hmm. al-Assad uh, in, in 2013 uh, with, with not just with Obama's red line kind of line where he's like, oh, chemical weapons are a red line. And then of course, chemical weapons were used and nothing happened. And, and, and Obama looked very weak um, and not credible on the world stage. And we all know how it ended, uh, Assad just went ahead and used chemical weapons on his people, killed half a million of his own countrymen, and he's still in power. Mm. And that's even even though before the red line comment by Obama, the Obama White House 
the stated policy of the Obama White House was a negotiated political settlement in Syria that sees uh, Assad out of power. That was the policy. Well, if, if that's the policy and, and you want a negotiated political settlement, you don't propose an authorization for military force to Congress like the Obama administration did that divorces uh, that that divorces mili- the use of the mili- military force and any political long-term goals that, that we have for Syria. And that's what the administration did. They said military force only will be authorized in the in instances where chemical weapons are used, not in furtherance of the other stated policy, which is to remove Assad from power. Um, and it misunderstands like divorcing those things like you you can't you know that that you can't use military force to help have a negotiated political settle- settlement is crazy because of course military force can be an element in a negotiated settlement. You use military force to weaken the your opponent, in this case Assad, so that his position, you force him into a negotiated political settlement in which is when he is weakest, not when he's strongest. Um, but you have to do that sort of before you call for negotiations or um, any kind of, uh, you know, uh, meetings uh, to bring about the end of hostilities, right? So what you have in Ukraine right now is um, we're bringing sanctions to bear and we're talking about, uh, you know, all of these extreme measures and, and arming the Ukrainians after the, the thing is already accomplished. You know, the, the time to talk this way and the time to bring these sanctions was before Russian troops rolled into Eastern Ukraine, before the Kremlin recognized these breakaway regions in Eastern Ukraine. At this point, uh, you know, um, the, the, the effectiveness of these tactics is going to be severely limited, I think, and and will not be much of a deterrence uh, for, for Vladimir Putin at this point. Well, listeners of this podcast know that my guilty pleasure is following celebrity trends, although I can't really say I feel that guilty about it. But recently I learned about an under-the-radar investment that some of the ultra-wealthy have been quietly funneling their money into for generations. And, of course, it really piqued my interest. Famous folks are known for touting their art collections, but you no longer have to be a coastal elite to invest in one of the oldest asset classes of all time. Because Masterworks is making adding art to your portfolio possible. Masterworks gives investors just like you access to the asset class that had low correlation to the S&P 500 over the past two decades. Masterworks even achieved a 32% and 31% net return for investors based on the sale of a Banksy and condo piece in 2020 and 2021, respectively. Now you don't have to be a hedge fund manager to invest in multi-million dollar paintings from iconic artists like Picasso, Warhol, and Banksy. And Masterworks has results. They've sold two paintings that netted their inventors a 30% plus IRR in 2020 and 2021. Even better, our listeners here at Federalist Radio Hour get priority access to their newest offerings. Simply go to masterworks.art slash federalist to get started. That's masterworks.art slash federalist. Before deciding to invest, carefully review the important disclosures at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. 
What do you see as the intellectual roots of this kind of philosophy? And I, I'm thinking back to the big controversy after, controversy after Obama was first inaugurated and he intentionally went on this tour um, apologizing for America is how it was described, and I think accurately so to an extent. It does seem like the Obamas, the Jake Sullivans, the Ben Rhodes of the world, um, you're pointing out what happened in, in Syria under the Obama administration with the red line and how that is, is mirrored uh, somewhat by Biden's actions here. What do you think the intellectual roots of that philosophy are? Is it sort of fundamentally, um, I don't know, globalist? What's the best uh, way that you can explain why some people in American leadership seem to think this approach um, of too little, too late um, at, at time and again is uh, wise? Well, part of it is political. You know, Obama campaigned in 2008 on an anti-Iraq war, anti-Afghanistan war sort of uh, position. He Mm -hmm. he, uh, and that and in in contrast to to the McCain campaign. Right. Um, And so and so that was. That was a political calculation that the Iraq war was unpopular and that it was a bad war and that we had no right to go in to to Iraq. Um, And so and so that's part of it. But the broader kind of thing, I think, is is pretty obvious. It's 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 the this kind of 1619 notion of American history that America is a malign actor in world affairs and that we're not a force for good, but a force for oppression and uh, colonialism and, uh, you know, um, capitalism and exploitation, you know, of um, developing parts of the world. and so that colors the way that you view U.S. foreign policy, obviously, uh, and any any and all interventions that we've had in the past. Um, uh, you know, it's a it's a very sort of left wing um, way of looking at the world. It's. I but think they still want to like send military equipment and you know boost Raytheon's bottom line, whether it's in Syria or Ukraine. Like they'll still the Obama types will still be fully in on that. And and like massive amounts of drone strikes too. Like right. remember, like like Obama droned just more people than George W. Bush ever dreamed of, right? Um, so no, yeah, it's not necessarily an aversion to intervention, uh, but it's a it's it's intervention uh, plus. A, a, a kind of simpering rhetoric about you know how how troublesome America's intervention is, I, I, you know part of it too is just uh, like incoherence. You know, no one ever accused the left of being intellectually consistent, right? So <laughs> you can have you can have the Obama administration, uh, you know, do all these interventions and essentially maintain. Uh, policies that were very similar to the George W. Bush administration in both Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, you, you sort of pulled all the troops out of Iraq in 2011, but it wasn't a few, but a few years later that they were back back there because because of ISIS and then because of the Syrian civil war. Um, but but all the while maintaining the same kind of rhetoric that like uh, you know it's and 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 implying that it's all your your Republican predecessor's fault. But I really think when it comes to the Ukraine crisis, that the, the, the core issues and, and, the, and the sort of big picture strategic issues and the historical realities around this conflict are things that the Biden White House hasn't even thought, of, thought about. <laughs> uh, it, it hasn't even occurred to them that any, for, in, for example, any um, 
claims of Russia to uh, the Black Sea or to a uh, or to Sevastopol or Crimea could be um, anything other than you know just aggression, like that. There's no validity at all to their claims. And the other, th- and what that does, and I think what it's doing is it it invites this and creates this maximalist rhetoric on the U.S. side, backed up by weak actions which destroys any credibility on the part of the US and its allies. But it also signals to to Moscow um, that there's no off ramp here as as events unfold, as as the crisis continues, that there's no off ramp because there's there's no willingness to recognize the historical complexity of the situation. And maybe that, um, you know, going back to 1991, that maybe it wasn't such a great idea to include as part of territorial Ukraine, uh, you know, Russia's only like uh, uh, naval base in the Black Sea, like their only access out to Europe. Um, That's a core interest for Russia. It is no one thinks that that's a core interest to the United States, that this territorial dispute between Ukraine and, and Russia is a core interest to the United States. It's certainly not something that American people would ever support putting U.S. troops in harm's way to, you know, uh, to, to defend Ukraine's right to, like, keep Crimea. Like, I'm sorry, like, that, that just does not rise to the level of, of a core U.S. interest. Um, but, but my point being, I'm kind of rambling here, my point being, it's possible that the Biden administration is is making a all out war between Russia and Ukraine more likely by closing down any kind of off ramps that there might be for Putin in this, um, you know, being able to recognize that that, you know, Russia, not all Russia's claims are completely uh, unreasonable would would be a starting point. Uh, but at no point have we heard anything like that from from the Biden administration. Um, and I think Putin has sort of taken the measure of the situation and thought, well, uh, since there's not going to be any kind of discussion, any kind of serious discussion about solving the, the, the very, the, the real problems that we have with, with a, a, a Ukraine that's oriented toward Europe and not toward Russia, then we're just going to sort of make this a fait accompli and we're going to annex Crimea and we're going to annex these, these areas in Eastern Ukraine uh, and we're just going to do it and, uh, and, and we'll see what the West does. So why does it even matter whether the United States, and this is a devil's advocate question, of course, um, actually, I shouldn't say, of course, because I think there's an increasing small but increasing number of people on the right who would ask this question. Mm -hmm. Why does it matter if the United States projects strength in in this situation at all? Um, You know, why does the United States need to be taking a leadership role in these negotiations? Why does it matter? I think it's tied to this notion, this sort of, you know, uh, post-World War II and post Cold War international uh, order, you know, U.S. hegemonic international order that, um, you know, we, we don't just let countries invade other countries and uh, we, we don't um, just let uh, countries violate the territorial sovereignty of other sovereign nations uh, and that, you know, we all are going to solve these problems collectively as part of, a, uh, of an international order that, the United States is in charge of. And that has been the case for decades and decades. Um, but 
but I, I, to your point, I think there are a, there are a growing number of voices on the right uh, who are disillusioned with that international order and who think that that international order um, mostly serves like multinational corporate interests, right? Mm-hmm. And doesn't really serve the interests of the American people. Uh, and so it's tied up with all these other things, right? It's tied up with global trade. It's tied up with uh, corporate ac- U.S. corporate acquiescence to every whim of the uh, Chinese Communist Party. Um, and and so now you have uh, you have sort of you know uh, the corporate corporate media and uh, never Trump uh, media uh, wringing their hands about how Tucker Carlson is being an apologist for for for, for Vladimir Putin. Uh, when I don't I don't think it's I don't think that Tucker Carlson is an apologist for Vladimir Putin. I think Tucker Carlson doesn't care about Vladimir Putin one way or right. the other. He thinks Russia is a poor country and 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 it, we should ignore it, and maybe we should because um, you know you had the the editorial in the Wall Street Journal today. Uh, I'm I'm motioning down here because it's on the floor at my feet right now, <laughs> the print edition because I'm very old. Uh, That's true. About Cold War II arrives. Now, this isn't Cold War. Cold War II has been here for a while, and it's not with Russia; it's with China. Mm-hmm. Um, so this isn't Cold War II. Uh, th- there, there are sort of other forces at work that are causing some on the right to question whether or not the United States and its international allies and the U.S.-led international order needs to adjudicate every little friggin' territorial dispute out there uh, and and get involved, uh, especially after the debacle of Afghanistan, the, you know, sort of um, interminable war in Iraq uh, uh, and and the reality of a rising China. I mean, yeah, so I, I, I think that these things are all wrapped up together, right? Uh, that they're, they're not, it's not just a case of uh, some on the right being, you know, pro-Russia uh, because, you know, because Putin's a strong leader. I don't think it's that bit <laughs> at all. Right. And so Candace Owens uh, tweeted yesterday, I believe, you know, if you want to understand what's really happening in Russia, go listen to Vladimir Putin's speech. Um, and there's a middle ground between what you said, which is that the West is sort of reflexively saying there is no validity at all to any of Russia's concerns about Ukraine. And what Candace Owens said, which is that, listen to Putin, you know, this is this is the, the legitimate explanation. But again, to invoke Ann Applebaum, she said what Putin is doing is testing the West. And as much as I think she's wrong about, you know, 90 percent of things, a broken clock is right twice a day. And that does seem to be the case. So the is this actually a test of the West in a way that she wouldn't argue, but I think maybe is more accurate it's a test of how the United States can reconfigure its relationship with these negotiations, whether they're in Afghanistan, whether they're in uh, Ukraine. What does it look like to still have American leadership on the global stage without having nation building and without, you know, treating Ukrainian fighters like we treated the Mujahideen, whatever it is? Is that a, is it a test maybe in that sense? I, yeah, I mean, I agree that Putin is testing the West, uh, and I agree that it is a it is a test, not just of what he can get away with without um, in, incurring, you know, um, spectacular military defeat um, at the hands of NATO forces, but a test of how the United States and the international system that 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 is led by the United States will respond to um, to these long simmering 
conflicts. You know, Ukraine and Russia and this this business with Crimea and and Eastern Ukraine, in some ways, as I said, has been a ticking time bomb for for, for decades. Uh, Russia and China and Iran have never uh, been on board with the U.S.-led international order. Obviously, they would like to revise that order. Uh, China would like it to be a China-led international order. and and we and the contours and outlines of that are, are really obvious uh, with the Belt and Road Initiative, sort of like create you know creating debtors out of every poor country in the world, and imposing you know and and having them in exchange for Chinese funding, adopting Chinese policies on a whole host of uh, in a whole host of areas. Um, but yeah, Putin is testing the resolve, and I think that he—it's savvy of him to do it right now because he—we've, you know, on the heels of the Afghanistan debacle, uh, and knowing that major military intervention by the United States anywhere in the world does not have the support of the American people, and that Biden is is just about the the best person Putin could have at the helm. Uh, for for this sort of a test, it, it, it is uh, perhaps a savvy move to to try to adjudicate these longstanding questions about Ukraine now, uh, rather than you know waiting for a, a new administration to come in. Which, uh, or- by the way, is basically what. Donald Trump said yesterday in that interview that went sort of viral and people were freaking out about, he's basically saying in a very Trumpian way, what Putin's doing is very smart. (laughs) Right. I mean, right. Cause it's sort of like, because he he wouldn't have tried it with Trump in the white house. Right. I I think, is that what Trump said? I I think that's what he was, what he was getting (laughs) at, but he was saying, he was saying, and again, like it, do I think it's ideal to have a former president or president talk like that? Absolutely not. But the freak out over what he said, I think was also misplaced because he was basically admiring the, let's say, strategery of Putin. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And, and, uh, uh, and it may, it may prove that the strategery of Putin has, is, has been a massive mistake and that, that uh, this will all go very badly for him. And so I don't want to, I actually don't want to like be too confident in what I'm in, in my pronouncements here, because the situation is very fluid. We haven't seen this sort of thing, um, you know, uh, in Europe with, with involving Russian troops. I mean, there's been kind of low level fighting in Eastern Ukraine since 2014 and 2015. Um, but this, this has potential to go sideways uh, in a lot of different d- directions. Uh, and so I, I don't think anyone should be too confident about what, what the end game is going to be. I don't think anyone knows. In some ways, I don't know that Putin knows. I, and I back to your point about him testing, I think he, he is sort of seeing what he can get away with. And that's certainly what happened in 2014 with the annexation of Crimea. Uh, it's what happened in 2008 uh, in, with Georgia. You know, the, the response to the George W. Bush administration, idiotically suggesting that Ukraine and Georgia could become members of, of NATO. I don't know why they, they thought that was a good idea or what they thought would happen. But what did Putin immediately do? He uh, created a border crisis with Georgia uh, with, with uh, you know, sort of incursions of separate, you know, separatists, right? But really Russian troops um, eventually occupying these two areas of, of Georgia and creating a border dispute. Well, why would he do that? Because he, he knows, and as everybody uh, uh, in, at, at NATO knows, that uh, NATO cannot admit a country into NATO that has an ongoing border dispute. So George W. Bush administration floats the idea of Georgian membership in Ukraine. 
or in, in NATO, and Putin creates a border crisis in Georgia to make membership in NATO impossible. Um, I think at, a, at a, you know, I think Putin is aware of the of the weakness of his position to some extent, and he's seeing where he can he can destabilize the U.S. led Western international order, and and where he can advance Russian claims. And uh, so far, because of our because of our divisions, because of our inattention to to large strategic matters, uh, and because of our increasingly dysfunctional polity, like domestically, mm -hmm. uh, he sees now as a good time. A and obviously because of our president. <laughs> but And then again, it just brings it back to the question of, does any of this, is this a major tragedy for the American people? Um, and it, like, so criticizing the weakness of, of Biden's foreign policy, I mean, it seems some of this is objectively uh, accurate criticism. Why does it matter at the end of the day? Yeah, I mean, it matters because you want uh, because uh, whatever one thing, what whatever you think of the U.S.-led international order, it's still a real thing, right? right. Uh, and so, and so, it's important the way the U.S. behaves as the leader of that international order. The U.S. Uh, it does have you know the most most formidable military in the world. Uh, we do have the largest economy. Uh, so and what we, we should, we should. Right. Right. I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm all for having the best military and the largest economy. Put me as like pro that. Uh, <laughs> so it matters what the U.S. does and, and it matters what kinds of things we sanction and what kinds of things we don't sanction. Uh, and and it, it matters, for example, just to bring it back to something concrete that, that I mentioned at the beginning, the Nord Stream 2. It matters that the United States has a particular point of view, a strategic point of view about whether it's a good thing or a bad thing for Germany to be energy dependent on Russia. Exactly. That is a question that, could, that should concern Americans, right? And by the way, uh, we are to some extent, just in terms of our pricing, energy dependent on what happens in other countries. There's, it is inevitable. It, we, can, we can drill here as much as we want, but at the end of the day, our prices are inextricably intertwined with the situations in other countries. Yes. And so, and so it's important uh, what the U.S. policy is about those things. It's important what U.S. leadership and what any given White House administration does. Uh, and the actions of the Biden administration on this front have conveyed, I think, to, to Russia weakness, uh, a lack of focus, uh, uh, sort of like fecklessness and a shallowness of thought. Uh, and I think he's re responding accordingly. Yeah. And it, sh it should not go unnoted that Russia and Cuba um, had a, a little powwow this week where they announced, uh, I guess, closer ties or plans to be tied more closely on various issues of economic and geopolitical import. Um, and to the Wall Street Journal's point about Cold War II, it does it, it does, again, raise the the inevitability and the inescapable reality that in a globalized world where information travels in a split second and nuclear powers can, uh, you know, transmit military might in a split second that Russia, a stronger Russia and a stronger tie between Russia and Cuba um, would put, I mean, it obviously puts Americans in danger, no matter how abstract that concern may seem. It does. And, you know, I'll, I mean, maybe, maybe we can, we can end on this note, but I, you know, going back to 
uh, Cold War II and the idea of the Cold War not being with Russia, but with China, um, Russia and China obviously want to revise the post-Cold War international order. And, uh, and as I said, China would like to be the leader of that international order. Uh, if we had strategic thinkers in the White House and in the State Department who, uh, who, who took the, this kind of like, you know, world historical stuff seriously uh, and, and didn't like want to like wage foreign policy by meme, um, <laughs> you would have people thinking about and talking about how to rather than pushing Russia and China, in, for example, into a closer alliance, you know, Russia and Cuba having closer economic ties you know, unsettling maybe, but Cuba is a very small, poor country and Russia is also a poor country, but Russia and China having a closer alignment is, is something that we should think about deeply. And we should think about how uh, Russia could be brought over maybe to our side vis-a-vis -vis a cold war with China. Uh, you know, and, and there's a, there's a case to be made that it would be worth giving all of Ukraine to Russia if if Russia would be our ally in a real legitimate cold war with China. Uh, because the, the threat here is not that the, the U S led international order is going to be thwarted by Russia. The, the threat, the, the danger here is that, that it will be, and it is being undermined and threatened by China. Uh, and to the extent that we get bogged down in a territorial dispute between Russia and Ukraine over ports and and land uh, that came about as a result of the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991 and, and takes our eye off the ball, uh, that is all to China's advantage. Um, and, uh, you know, and the Chinese are very aware of that. So I, you know, I, I'm not meaning to sound callous about the Ukrainian people and the, the, and the fate of, of the people in Eastern Ukraine, um, but th this is not Cold War II. Cold War II is with China, uh, and its flashpoint will not be in the Donbas region of Ukraine. It will be in Taiwan and the, and, 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 and the Straits of Taiwan. Mm. And yeah, I think a, a good place to end is that this is a, a test. It just depends on, you know, who, which factions uh, idea of what passing that test would look like, which, which version of that wins out. Yeah, well, I, I hope that, that uh, we're able to keep our heads in this thing and and uh, sort of pass the test. To me, what passing the test would look like would be if, if we are able to provide some sort of off-ramp to Russia uh, to de-escalate the situation and, uh, and get some kind of negotiated settlement so that Russia gets some of what it wants, uh, recognizing that some of its claims are valid, and Ukraine gets some of what it wants, uh, recognizing that its desire for political independence is valid, uh, and uh, and that we can get back to the real task here, which is containing China. Um, that, to me, would be passing the test, but I have no confidence the Biden administration is up for it. Um, a, a cheerful and optimistic place as to end, as always. <laughs> uh, John Daniel Davidson, senior editor at The Federalist. Thank you so much for your time, John. Thanks, Emily. You can read that article up on our website, and I, of course, recommend that you do. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. You have been listening to another edition of The Federalist Radio Hour. We will be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray.